Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Welcome back to Your Path to Real Wealth. Uh, I'm Benjamin Cummings from Blue Barn Wealth, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Brimhall. How are you today, Jeff? Wonderful. Love it. Love it. Well, we're excited for another great episode. We've got a great guest on today, and we're looking forward to hearing from him. Jeff, do you want to go ahead and introduce us to our guest today? Yeah, we have the privilege of having Stanford McCullough on with us today. He's an attorney with Fabian Bancott here locally in Utah, and he specializes in estate planning and tax planning. And uh, he's also becoming part of the Blue Barn Wealth team to help work with clients in an advisory role as well. And so we're excited to have him as part of our team and have him on the podcast today to help us learn more about estate planning. So Stanford, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about your education and background and how you've gotten to the point where you are yeah, so I uh, started in the financial planning world, and I went to UVU, and I got my CFP, taking all those classes there, and then I, I worked for a boutique wealth management firm for a while, and I would do income tax planning and estate planning, specifically in preparation for the sale of a business, and then upon the sale of the business, then we would manage the assets. And then I realized that the tax code is very complicated and that I needed additional education to really be able to best serve my clients. And so I decided to go to law school and I went to the University of Utah, the S.J. Quinney School of Law, and I focused on tax while I was there. And I was encouraged by uh, Professor Kim, who was the head of the tax program. And she encouraged me to get an, a tax LLM. So I applied to different programs and I ultimately decided to go out to uh, UC Irvine and do their tax LLM. They're a newer program and they have a fantastic faculty and they just bring on a very small number of students every year. And I completed that about a year ago where I just took a bunch of tax and estate planning classes and it was worth every penny. And then upon that, I've been working with uh, Fabian Van Kott for the past year doing estate tax and income tax planning. And I've uh, it's been wonderful. And I'm really excited for this uh, new opportunity with Blue Barn. And uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Stanford. What a great background and lots of wonderful education with your undergraduate degree at Utah Valley University in financial planning and then a law degree. And then LLM, for those who don't know, is that a master's in tax? That is a master's in tax, just yeah. an extra year of law school where you just take a bunch of tax classes. Sometimes we call it tax law school. Wow. Yeah. So you're well, well prepared to help us on our podcast today, understand estate planning and some of the basics. And today we just hope to focus on the basics and maybe we can do different specific strategies in the future. But if you could start us off and just maybe give a, a simple definition for what is estate planning? Yeah, estate planning is essentially preparing for to pass your assets and to, to your children or to whoever you may want and to establish your legacy. Uh, that, that's all it is really simply is, is the best way to, to do that in a way that benefits 
those who you care for and to prevent future fights in the future. And when you say to pass your assets specifically at the end of life, right? At the end of life. That's right. And you can also do it during life too. And that's part of estate planning as well. Wonderful. So transitioning assets over time, either through gifts while you're alive or upon death, passing it. Okay. And so who needs an estate plan? So an estate plan is really for anyone who has a, any type of significant asset in their life or for anyone who has uh, people that they care for, that they want to be cared for upon their passing. And even if you don't have a lot of assets, putting some things in place before you go is very smart and it can be a huge, uh, it takes away the burden for your family when you do pass and can make the transition much easier on them. So what, when we talk about an estate plan, specifically, what does that mean? Like, what are the key documents that are included in an estate plan and maybe a brief overview of how they work? Yeah. So for most people, a basic estate plan will consist of four documents. The first document is your last will and testament. Most of these in today's uh, day and age, these are designed as pour over wills, meaning what they do is they, the, the will will pour over all of the assets in your estate to be administered into your trust. So your trust is the second estate planning document. And this is really the governing instrument that sets forth the rules and conditions by which how your estate will be administered and how it will work and who gets what. And then the other two documents is uh, their powers of attorney. One is a financial power of attorney. And this is if you're incapacitated, it allows someone to make financial decisions on your behalf to file your income tax returns, to pay your bills and to make financial decisions if you can't for yourself. And then the other, the last document is your medical power of attorney. And this is if you can't make medical decisions for yourself, you can appoint someone to make those for you. Okay, so four key documents, the will. And who's stated in the will? What's the person that's elected in the will to take over for you? So in your will, you'll appoint what's called in Utah, we call it a personal representative. And this is the person that you choose to administer your estate. If you have to go through a probate, this is the person that will have the authority to pay those final expenses and to administer any assets that are in your probate estate. So we have a personal representative for the will, successor trustee for the trust. We have uh, a limited power of attorney or someone who takes on limited power of attorney for you if you're alive and can't function for yourself or need someone to help make those decisions. And then a medical power of attorney. Are those the four key people that need to fill some kind of a role in an estate plan? Those are the four key people. And for most people, they these are generally the same person. Most people, their personal representative is also their trustee, and it's also who they trust to make their financial decisions. For the medical power of attorney, most people will first appoint their spouse. For all these documents, people will primarily first appoint their spouse if they if they have one, or if they're not, if they don't, or if they're not, their spouse isn't living, then they'll appoint their children. Sometimes they'll appoint all their children acting together. Sometimes they'll appoint just one if if they, one is more trustworthy than the others. So it can be the same person or it can be different people. And sometimes it can be 
you could have two people acting as your personal representative or even more. But uh, sometimes it make it, you don't want too many people holding a role though, but two, two or three is probably the most you'd want to have for your personal representative or for those powers of attorneys. Yeah. And it yep. seems like if you were to have multiple people, you'd want to have a way for them to make decisions if they disagreed. What have you seen in place for that? Some clients will say, I want my kids to be unanimous in their decisions. And so they have to come to the same decision. And other clients prefer that it's done by a majority. And uh, sometimes they'll even put in there that there's a tiebreaker that somebody will have the authority to break a tie. Yeah. And in my experience, I've also seen that people may choose someone to fill these roles who have a specific background or expertise. So for medical, if they have a, a child in the healthcare industry, they might choose them for that. Uh, like for my father, my my sister was a nurse. And so he picked her for the medical and then picked others for those other roles. Have you seen that as well, Stanford? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you'll have someone who wants to give one of their children some responsibility but they don't want it to be, so they have some role to play in their estate plan, but they don't want it to be the, to the same extent as like a trustee. And a tr the role of a trustee lasts for a long period of time. It takes a lot more involvement. So sometimes we see someone will appoint one of their children who they want to have a smaller role as a personal representative, because that's only for us, it's a much smaller amount of time when that work is to be done and it allows them to have a role and participate, but not uh, as involved as a trustee. Well, very good. No, this has been very helpful. Thank you. One of the questions I'm having, Stanford, is you mentioned some of those key documents. I, I also hear about a living will or an advanced medical directive. Could you speak about how that fits in with these other documents? Yeah, so the, your advanced medical directive, that's the same document as your medical power of attorney. And in that document, there's a section for your living will. And it, it, it's the pull the plug question. So the statutory form in Utah gives a lot of different uh, situations of when you might want to pull the plug. Most attorneys will narrow that down so their clients only need to pick between two or three. Most of the options are the first option is keep me living at all costs. Don't do anything. Option two is pull my plug immediately. And then the third, the most common option that we see is just keep me comfortable. Don't do anything to make me live longer, but just, you know, give me pain medicines and keep me comfortable. And that's probably the most common option that we see. Oh, and then another option that sometimes some people will choose is to just let my agent decide for me. I trust whoever I appointed and they can just make that decision and I trust them. And, and sometimes people think that's like that way to go. Okay. Uh, that's good to know. And it makes sense how that fits right in with that medical power of attorney, since they're the ones that are going to be empowered to make those decisions. So yeah, thank you for providing that context. So we talked about some of these roles, Stanford. What, the one role we didn't talk about is beneficiaries. Maybe some thoughts on how recommendations or what people think about as they select the beneficiaries for their trust. 
Yeah, so most people want to pass their estate to their own family. So they want to pass it to their kids. And they also have a charitable objective. So as I said at the beginning, you know, estate, you're building your estate plan is establishing your legacy and where you want your assets to go to. And clients have all kinds of different causes that they care about. And so in addition to their family, a lot of people will choose charity and they'll choose different charities that they like and they incorporate that as part of their estate plan and a portion of their assets will pass to to charity and then for people who don't have uh, children we see all kinds of creative and wonderful ways how people want to leave a legacy and it's often through charity it's leaving it to friends or it's through other creative ways of of making the best use of their money that they built over time. So if somebody's wanting to change beneficiaries, maybe walk through that process of what that would look like. Yeah. So once you've established a trust, if you want to change the beneficiaries, you have to amend your trust in your will. Like I said, most wills are generally designed as a pour over will where they just pour over the assets into your trust But most states have a very specific statute where they allow what's called a tangible personal property list. And this is a clause that can be put in the will that says, for my tangible personal property, I want to dispose it by a written list. And then the client can go and they can write, you know, I want my grandfather's watch to go to my nephew, John. And then if they want to change that later on, all they have to do is tear up the old list and make a new list and say, now I want my grandfather's watch to go to my daughter, uh, Sally. And so now they don't have to come in and change all their documents just because of a simple change like that. So these tangible personal property lists are a really nice benefit for changing beneficiaries. But for real property and things that aren't tangible personal property, to change the beneficiaries, you have to actually uh, do an amendment of your trust. Okay, good to know. So in general, if somebody's trying to set up an estate plan for the first time and get these these key documents in place, what, what are the typical costs of setting up that plan? And any thoughts you have on, on the budgeting for that too? Yeah, so estate planners charge in a variety of different ways, depending on who you go to. Uh, the historically it's always been attorneys would always just charge by the hour. So I'll come and you'll come and meet with an estate planning attorney. He'll keep track of his time and he'll send you a bill by the hour as he drafts all the documents. However, in Utah, especially there's been a big movement towards flat fee. And so clients could come in. I'd probably say in my experience, I've seen probably the average estate plan probably for all those four documents is, probably averaging around $3,000, maybe a little bit under that for how much it costs to get everything in place. And flat fees are really nice and clients love flat fees because they know exactly what costs to expect from the beginning. And so it's really nice for flat fees. The disadvantage is you get more complicated and with more complicated estates and you have to do some more sophisticated trust drafting and more creative planning then flat fee just doesn't work because from the attorney's perspective, it's really hard to just gauge how long some of these projects are going to take. 
So for clients that have a very simple situation, looking for a flat fee is will work great. But for clients that have a more sophisticated estate, they'll probably find that attorneys will estate planning attorneys will want to charge by the hour. Okay. Very good. Now, one of the objectives that's common in setting up an estate plan is uh, to deal with probate. Could you talk a little about what probate is and why it may be worth working to avoid probate in setting up your estate plan? Yeah. So when you pass away, if you have any assets that are left in what's called your probate estate, and this is basically any assets that weren't funded into your trust, the way to pass those on to the next generation is you have to go through a court process called probate. So you have to file in Utah, there's two types of probate. There's informal probate and formal probate. Informal probate is generally used for when there's not expected to be a fight among children or beneficiaries upon passing, when it's going to be really straightforward and you file a simple informal probate with the court and letter, you get the personal representative of the will will get what's called letters testamentary, which is the powers from the court to now administer the estate. And for contested pro- probates, you have to go through a process called formal probate. So if there's some beneficiaries that want to fight, they have some grounds to fight what was in the will or in the trust, and it looks like it's going to be messy, then... Uh, formal probate is you have to do everything in front of the courts and the courts kind of supervise and monitor the administration of the estate. And in Utah, probate's not too bad. It's a pretty simple and easy process as long as it's not contested. It's not too expensive and it's pretty streamlined. And But in some states like California, probate is just can be the biggest headache. And so it's it's much more desirable to avoid probate in California and in some of these other states where having to go and deal with the court system to pay bills of the decedent, to pass things to the beneficiaries, it can just be very burdensome. So it's it's worthwhile when possible to avoid probate. And it, it's even nice in Utah to be able to just move everything into the trust and not have to go to the courts to pass things to heirs and to pay last bills and that type of things. Isn't it true that if you go to probate, your assets also become public information and anyone can search it and find out what uh, assets you own? Yeah, that is true. And you could file with the court to seal the record if there's really confidential situations and there are exceptions that you can try to make it so it doesn't become public, but in most cases it will be public with probate. Very good. So shifting gears a little bit, another kind of objective or common objective of estate planning is to consider how to avoid or minimize estate tax. Could you talk a little about who is typically subject to estate tax and how much that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the estate tax rate right now is 40% of your estate. However, there is an estate exemption amount. And in uh, 2023, for an individual, 
your estate would have to be bigger than $12,920,000. And if your estate's bigger than that, anything above that, you'll generally pay a 40% estate tax. And then if you're married, that exemption's doubled. So your estate would have to be bigger than $25,840,000 for your estate to be taxable. So right now, that's a very big number. So most people will, won't have to worry about estate tax, only the super wealthy. However, those numbers are going to sunset in 2026. And so in 2026, it's, that exemption amount is going to drop from 12 to about five. And it'll be adjusted for inflation. So it'll be a little higher than that. So if you're married in 2026, after that, if your estate's bigger than about 10 million, you might be subject to estate tax. So for those who have estates between, for married couples who have estates between about 10 million and 25 million right now, it's kind of up in the air if those estates are going to be taxable, right, or not. Mm. So it's possible that Congress will get something done and the exemption will stay high. It's possible that who knows what Congress will do. And there's a lot of speculation out there on what might happen. But if you have a smaller estate you below $10 million, unless Congress changes anything right now, you're much like much more likely to be safe from having to pay estate taxes. But if you're above $25 million, you're definitely should consider having some estate tax planning in place to help you uh, minimize the amount of estate tax that you'll pay. Do you mind commenting next about the gift tax and how that fits into this equation? Because I'd imagine some people might be thinking, hey, if I'm if I'm north of the 10 million mark and below the 25 million, uh, they might be thinking about strategies they could try and employ now before that sunsets in 2026. So maybe if you could speak about the gift tax and how that fits in these considerations too. Yeah, absolutely. So the exemption amounts for the gift tax are the same numbers, the same amounts as they are for the estate tax. So for clients who are worried that in 2026, that that number will go down from 25 to 10, they can make gifts right now because right now they have $25 million as a couple that they can make gifts and move outside of their estate. But if they wait till after 2026, they could only gift whatever the exemption amount is then, which is about 10 million. So they'd lose out on $15 million. So right before uh, Biden was elected, estate planning attorneys were just super busy with gifting because when Biden was elected, everyone was worried that the estate tax amount would get changed and it led all this work where people were coming in and doing exactly that, where they were maximizing their gift tax exemption now instead of um, waiting and losing exemption if that amount goes down in the future. Stanford, could you speak next to the income tax consequences of assets in an estate? Like how do income taxes play into estate planning? Yeah, so we've seen a big shift with this with these exemption amounts going up as high as they are. And because most people don't have to worry about estate taxes, there's income tax planning opportunities. And so for any assets that are in your for most assets, there's some exemption exceptions, but for most assets that are in your estate when you die, 
under section 1014, you get what's called a step up in basis at death. So for instance, I have a client right now who has a house and they bought the house for way back in the day for like $80,000. And now the house is worth close to a million dollars. And there's all this appreciation. If they were to sell that house today, they would have a huge capital gains tax because of all that appreciation. And so one thing that they can do is they can hold that asset in their estate, all that appreciation. And then at death, that house would get stepped up to a million dollars. So their basis in the asset would get stepped up to a million dollars and the heirs would inherit that house with the basis of a million dollars. And then now they can sell the house and they don't have any capital gains tax because of that step up in basis. And so there's a kind of a game that's played and the game is, would I rather pay estate tax or would I rather pay income tax? Because if I move assets out of my estate, when I die, I don't have to pay estate tax on those assets. But if I keep those assets in my estate, I can get a step up in basis and minimize my income tax. Um, so it's, it's this game that you're playing of, oh, some assets that are really highly appreciated, maybe let's keep those in my estate and other, estate, other assets, maybe we'll move them out. But for some people, it, for a lot of with the wealthy, it, that 40% tax rate is so high that it makes sense to even move assets that have huge appreciation outside of their estate because the estate tax would be bigger than the capital gains tax that they would play, that they would pay. So that's kind of the, the game that you have to play. There's a lot of, it sounds like there's a lot of considerations in putting together a good estate plan between income tax, gift taxes, estate taxes, and also making sure, you know, the most important thing is that the money passes to the people that you want to receive it. And it passes in such a way that it's a benefit to them and, and not a hindrance. I think a lot of times you hear of, of, you know, people receiving an inheritance and it turns out to, you know, potentially create some challenges in their life. So we, could talk about a lot of these things and go into a lot more depth, I think, and we'll do so on, on future podcasts, but maybe just tell us how often should an estate plan be reviewed and updated? Yeah. So some estate planners want to see their clients every year. And if you have a massive estate and a lot of things are moving and changing every year, then that makes a lot of sense, but definitely you should have your estate plan updated anytime there's a major event in your life. So if you get married, you should update your estate plan. If you have a child, you should update your estate plan. If your income changes significantly or your assets, your net worth, you should go in and update your estate plan. But your life does change over time. And so reviewing your estate plan on a regular basis and making sure it's always in line with your wishes is a very smart thing to do. Yeah, and that's something we do as... as advisors with our clients is make sure they review their estate plan on a regular basis and work closely with the attorney when those reviews happen. And so, but I, I think that's wise anytime that there's a big shift in your life, a life-changing event, or, you know, maybe every three to five years or so, if you don't have a big life-changing event. Yeah, definitely. You know, Stanford, this has been great. I really appreciate your time and in, in helping us better understand this landscape of estate planning. So thank you for coming and for, for talking to us. 
you know, our, our podcast is about your path to real wealth. And so as we close, we'd love to ask one last question of you. And that is just, what is real wealth to you? Well, I love uh, Blue Barn Wealth because of your definition that, you know, building real wealth is how, helping people live simple, intentional, and meaningful lives. And, you know, it doesn't, ha I always tell people in my L lab, in my program, we learned that there's uh, ships that you can go and live on in the ocean and really rich people will go and rent out a place on these ships where they have no uh, tax residents with any country. So they're not a tax resident of any country. So they don't have to pay their income taxes anywhere is kind of what they're trying to do. And to me, that just makes no sense because they have all the money in the world, but they're living out their days primarily on a ship out in the ocean. And so real world wealth to me is not just the accumulation of money and making decisions that just make the most financially, but it's making those decisions that you can use money to make the most out of life, to enjoy life and to be happy in life and to take part of every all the wonderful things that life has to offer. You know, that's really what money can do. Money can bless your life in so many ways and it can your legacy and your estate, it can not only bless yours, but it can bless your family and future generations. And I love being an estate planning attorney because it's just so fulfilling to come in and meet with clients who they have built up significant wealth over time and they don't want to ruin their kids. And when they die, they don't want their kids to just fight with each other. And they want their kids to be financially independent, but they also want to help them where they can to kind of give them the best life possible. And that's what I get to do as an estate planning attorney is help my clients live an intentional, simple, and meaningful life uh, with their money and get the most out of life and the most happiness and joy that comes from life. Oh, that's great. Well said, Stanford. Again, thank you for your time today. We certainly appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope this content was helpful in helping you on your journey to create real wealth. Please subscribe, tell your friends about the podcast. And uh, if you have any specific questions or if we can help in any way, please reach out. You can find us on bluebarnwealth.com. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.